In Acts chapter 7, we, we already reviewed a little bit last week in the first part about what Stephen's speech really was and the nature of it. But I want to revisit that very briefly, but as we continue on in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 7, we are going to cover the full 60 verses today in its entirety. And I hope and pray that it becomes not just real to you because the Word of God is living and active, but also that you will be able to apply what Stephen was saying to the Jewish ruling council and why he was saying it and how you can apply it to your own life in evangelism and what the gospel really means for us. So let's go back into what uh, I, I want to review what the actual problem was and I want to present where we're going today for the rest of our time. So the first part is the problem. There was a problem. And we saw in Acts chapter 6, the previous chapter, in verse 13 and 14, we saw uh, false witnesses going up to the high priest in the Sanhedrin and bringing an accusation that was this, in verse 13. This man, speaking of Stephen, never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So the two main things you didn't want to make fun of and you didn't want to blaspheme, which was the holy place, meaning the temple, and the law, the customs that were handed down through Moses. So we see in verse 14, For we have heard him say, which is not true, because they're just bringing out an accusation, for we have heard him say that the Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So there's the accusation is that they were saying that all this was going to be fulfilled in Jesus, who would then destroy the temple and then change the customs that Moses delivered through their father. And so there's our problem. So where do we go from there? We go into Stephen's speech. So what's the nature of Stephen's speech? It's a couple of rejections and a big misunderstanding. The first rejection we saw last week, very briefly in verse 1 through 16, we saw how the Joseph and the... Yeah, I noticed that there was a heat wave coming. I, wasn't, I was starting to sweat. I was like, what is this? Okay. Yes. I could notice, but I was getting more nervous and I'll talk to you that day. Nice. And it was all one side. I was like, why is this on the wrong side? Yeah. Why is this side looser than this one? So we saw in the first part that the problem. Second is the nature. And the, the two rejections, remember, are one, uh, they rejected Joseph uh, of the patriarchs. The second rejection is Moses and the law, and that we'll look in more detail today. And the and the, the big misunderstanding was over the tabernacle and temporary and, and the temple, and that they weren't permanent; they were temporary. And so the third part, what we'll see, is Stephen's main idea, and the last is Stephen stoning. What eventually all this led to. But I think the main idea that we need to get from today is that the presence of God is not restricted to any one place. Today we've been worshiping already a living God, active and moving amongst us 
uh, through the perfect work of His Son, Jesus Christ, in reconciling us to Him. And so we're not in Israel. We're not in the holy place. And we, can, we will see here in Acts that God has never, ever been restricted to a temple or to a tabernacle. He's always been moving and active amongst the world that he's created. So let's review. Uh, we've seen the problem in, in that religion and tradition are, are, are not better than Jesus, but they viewed that they were better because they didn't understand what the history from the very beginning would behold for them, how that would change everything about what they thought about the presence of God, knowing God and experiencing the presence of God. So in verses 1 through 16, high priest says to Stephen, Rose, uh, he says, are these things so? Are these accusations really true? And Stephen responds, okay, brothers and fathers, hear me out. The God of glory, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, in verse 3 it says in chapter 7, go out from the land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So there's the call of God. The reason why he uses the term God of glory is because this was a complete manifestation of God to Abraham. So what would be our response? It would be total obedience. Because there's nothing you can do when God calls you. That applies to our salvation. There's nothing you can do to resist the call of God. When God's Spirit opens your heart to the things of Him, you cannot resist that. Because God's saving power can break your the most resistant will. And that's why we pray. God, open their eyes of their heart to understand the gospel. Open their mind to understand the deep things of you and your word. That's why we pray those prayers, because we can't open someone's mind to understand God's call upon their life, which is first and foremost salvation, knowing Jesus. So as we look in verse 4, Abraham went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you're now living. So Stephen's pointing out, this is the land in which was promised to Abraham, your father. God called Abraham, and now you're here. So he's continually using the history so to show them, you are God's chosen people for what? And he'll talk about that in the very end. Verse 5, he says, he gave him no inheritance. Abraham did not receive any inheritance in the land. Not even a footsling. So he's even going to say, you didn't even get this much. You received none of it. You will receive none of it, Abraham. It says, but promised to give him as possession, and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners of the land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. So there's the prophecy in that. I'm going to inflict a mad punishment upon them through the sinful oppression of the Egyptians. But I'll do this for four, 400 years. It says in verse 7, But it won't last forever. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that they shall come out and worship me in this place that you're, that you're standing on. And it says in verse 8, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, Jacob, and then the twelve patriarchs. So the covenant of circumcision, it wasn't a physical uh, re-altercation uh, of, of a man's body. It was to point out these people will be separate. So God's making a new people. So you can see the same theme right here. I said it last week. I'll say it again. 
is that God's always been about making a new people for himself to dwell in his place under his good rule. So those are three things right there. A new people, a new place, under his good law, under his good word. So we saw in the beginning, and with Adam and Eve, remember, in Genesis, God's good place, which was the garden, God's people, which were Adam and Eve, under God's good word, which was what? Eat anything, be fruitful, multiply, but do not eat from the tree of good knowledge. Why? Because it was God's good word for what? For their protection, for their obedience, and their adoration and worship. God's always been about seeking his worshipers for himself. So we see this right here. God's call to Abram. He's restoring them. I'm calling a new people out to go into my new place to be under my good word. Now we'll see that here. Now, look in verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Remember, Joseph was one of the original 12 patriarchs, 12 sons of Jacob. That's a that's a word that they use for that. It says sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. There's our key right there, our key phrase. God was with him. So God was with Joseph in Egypt, far from the land of Canaan, far from the promised land. God's presence was with Joseph. In verse 10, it says, And God rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. In verse 11, here's the problem. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction. And our fathers could not find, and couldn't find no food. And but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And then verse 14 it says, And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob's fathers and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And they went down into Egypt, and he died there, Jacob and his and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So let's review from last week. This is where we're at now at this point. Is that Joseph was rejected amongst the patriarchs, he was rejected. And we see how the call of Abraham is working through because Abraham said that our God said to Abraham that I'm going to not even give you a foot sling to the inheritance of the land uh, to be a possession and to your offspring after. So God's making a new people for himself. Remember Abraham, the man's the man's like 90 years old. So his wife's you know tagging along just saying, hey, I don't know many 90-year-old women who are getting pregnant. You know, this is a miracle of God. Had one child. That was all he was able to experience. I'm sorry, excuse me. He had more than one child. He had a child from um, Hagar, who was um, their, their servant, one of their servants. And Sarah actually proposed Hagar to Abraham and said, give me a child. You know, And there was Abraham's disbelief there. So even Abraham, if you're ever wondering... You know, in those big moments of trusting God, how, God, are you going to do this? Abraham was right there with you because he wanted to wonder, how are you going to make of me a great nation? I don't even have one kid. But we see here, God is already preparing the way through Joseph to make a great nation. Seventy-five persons left land, went to Egypt to join Joseph. So we see a couple of things here. One is, uh, in, in uh in foreshadowing Jesus Christ, we see uh, just how Joseph 
was rejected amongst the peoples that Stephen was talking to, saying, your fathers, you always rejected God's sent deliverer. Joseph, jealous of Joseph, his fellow brothers sold him into slavery. But what we also see here, besides the rejection of Joseph, is also redemption through this character, this figure. We see Joseph saying to them, making himself known. Remember in Genesis 50, we look back in Genesis 50, chapter 50, verse 19 and 20, it says, uh, Joseph saying to his brothers, because they're just scared out of their mind, what's this guy going to do to me? I sold our own, sold our own brother into slavery. How is he going to respond to this now that he is Pharaoh's right-hand man? And Joseph says in verse 19 and 20 of Genesis 50, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about the many people should be kept alive as they are today. So even Joseph understood the evil intent in their hearts, knowing how God was orchestrating and working for God's own good pleasure. And we saw how, how that would take place, because in verse 9 we saw the confirming verse, which says, but God was with him. God was with him, confirming his promises to Joseph, how he's going to restore him. So that's the first Part the nature of Stephen's speech, and that Joseph, uh, one of the patriarchs, being rejected. But second, Moses and the law rejected. And verse 17 says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So there's now millions and millions of the nation of Israel being built up in Egypt. So obviously that made things very uncomfortable for the Egyptians. So it says in verse 18, Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, uh, didn't know anything about how Joseph handled even his descendants, how he helped his descendants increase and multiply. But verse 19, we see, He dealt truly, truly with our race, very cruelly, and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. So there we see a... A massive amount of hatred and an acts of genocide trying to eliminate the, the Israelites. In verse 20 we see, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in his words Indeed. So remember, there's three periods of rejection for Moses. The first one is this one. It's the Egyptian rejection, then you have the Midianite, and then we have the wilderness. So let's just camp out with the Midianite or the Egyptian rejection right here. Let's just talk about Moses for a second. Most of us, when we think of Moses, okay, baby boy, down the Nile River, in a reed basket, getting picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Pharaoh's real mother gets called to serve as caring for Moses as he grows up. He, re, he gets rejected and exiled, and he comes back with a staff, and he's got a white beard, and he's raising Cain with Pharaoh, does some plagues, and goes off and leads the people of Israel. But we don't realize is how did he get to where he was at 40 years old? If you read Philo, and I believe it's Josephus, both of them confirm that Moses... Uh, actually, it was the Hellenistic Jews in their writings confirmed that Moses helped father 
and help establish Egyptian civilization in many ways. You read some of the stuff from Philo and Josephus, these uh, guys who story, Jewish historians, they commented how much Moses was not unintelligent, he was very intelligent, very proficient in things like geometry, mathematics, science, astronomy, uh, was a good-looking dude. I mean, he was very wise. He was very beautiful. Uh, had good stature. So he was kind of like the guy on the cover of GQ, Egyptian GQ, uh, you know, Forbes, Egyptian Forbes, Cairo. I don't know. But he he knew all this stuff because God's favor was on this dude. So this is a leader who had it together. So I don't know many of us who just follow a guy who's just incompetent. This guy was very competent. I mean, helped shape Egyptian culture in many ways. And so that kind of speaks uh, to us in our day right now in that our gospel mission should be in our, wherever walk of life we're in, whatever profession we're in, we need to carry the same excellent stature that God's given us and gifted us with so that we can help change culture and shape civilization around the things of God. And so we see here that Moses... You know, before he was exiled or went to exile from the Egyptians, he understood a lot of what he was going to return to. And we see later how he was leading the Israelites out of uh, out of Egypt. In verse twenty-three, let's return. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So we see here a quarrel. 26. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them. And saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor, he thrust him aside, thrust Moses aside and said, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So we see here Moses being rejected, rejected in Egypt by his own people. And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So here we see now he's exiled and he's in Midian. Now this is in northwest Arabia. So this is far from still the Holy Land. Now here's the second period of rejection. This is in the Midianite period. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. So when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. Now here's a reminder. Stephen's using the history of Moses to remind these Jewish people who are confronting him about why he's declaring Jesus Christ as the Messiah who would change the customs of Moses because the main point, remember, is the presence of God is not restricted to any one place. It's not. It's not held to one place or location. We have a term that we use for uh, to describe a characteristic of God uh, being everywhere, His presence being everywhere, omnipresent. And, and what that means for us as believers is that God is everywhere. God is moving and we can trust Him. We can know that His presence is with us. But if you're an unbeliever and you don't know Jesus Christ, you can know this, that you're not here by accident. And that you're, you have a purpose and a calling. That calling is to know God. And the second purpose is to make Him known. 
So as we look here more in verse 32, Stephen is telling the Jewish council and the high priest, here's a reminder of where you came from again, because I'm going to use it through Moses. It says in 32, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, take the sandals off from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And this is far from the temple that would be constructed. This is far from Canaan. This is very far. This is on Mount Sinai, northwest Arabia. So we see here this confirmation here that God's presence is not confined to the holy temple. Because the Jews were stuck in the holy, God's presence is here within these four walls. And are we the same way in many times in many respects? We view a building. This is only where God can be experienced. When God can be experienced through us, because we're a holy priesthood. And for living stones built upon the cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ. Let's look at 34. God says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So there's Abraham's call out there. I'm going to send you to Egypt. I'm going to send you to rescue the Israelites. This Moses in 35, this Moses whom they rejected. There's a, there's a rejection right here. Who made you a ruler and judge? This, God, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, from the ten, ten plagues, at the Red, and at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. So here's a dude who knew business, good looking. Who took his staff and, you know, hit a couple rocks, water came out. You know, manna rained down from heaven, also quail, um, at his call because God's hand was on him. He raised his arms up and water separated and a million people went through the Red Sea. And then he did this again, like I flip it on the light switch and they closed back down and all the Egyptians or the, the troops died in there, all the chariots uh, and with their horses and everything was destroyed. But we see how the hard-heartedness of the Israelites, the nation of Israel, existed even before all of the exile from the Babylon and the Syrian invasion and all those kinds of things in the first and second kings. But we see it all the way back in the wilderness. This man led them out performing all these signs and wonders being done. So Stephen's using this also to point out Jesus performed many signs and wonders amongst you as well. You rejected him. Connecting the two right here, that Jesus, uh, hello, took five loaves and two fishes and made a feast for more than 5,000 people and did it again. And you still rejected him. Raised the dead. You still rejected him. So as we see here, Stephen is using the character of Moses in their own history to point out their own unbelief and resistance to the Holy Spirit from signs of wonders. And verse 37 says, And this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for your prophet like me from your brothers. So Moses being rejected, even in rejected meeting, and in the wilderness. And this is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to them, Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, 
He received living oracles to give us. So we saw the three rejections of Moses. It was Egyptian, a Midianite, and a wilderness. So even after they had gone through the Red Sea and uh, eaten their fill of cow's occasion, even <laughs> still after all of that, you know what I'm saying? They still did not believe that God was good enough. I mean, just, just think about it. They still long to be back in Egypt. You know? Why does it say that? It says in 39, Our fathers refused to obey Him, but thrust Him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They turned to Egypt. You know what's so amazing after the election happened this week? I don't think I... I don't think I... I think I saw a trend, but... I don't think I saw... Anything other than this. It was a lot of... Uh, Mostly people from the Southeast, but just in Christians in general from, from the United States. I saw a lot of comments the day before the election. Oh, this election's in the bag. We got this. We're going to, there's no way that Obama will get reelected. And the day after, all I saw were, we put this in your hands, Lord. This is all you. You're in control. You're sovereign. It was almost as if I saw this election schizophrenia about their view of. How, how in control is God? Oh, we're in control before oh, if things don't turn out well. Oh, you're in control now, God. And I think to myself, how the Israelites viewed their relationship with God the same way. In that when things were fine and in their control, they had enough food, everything was great, there was no complaint. But when things weren't going well, it was their disbelief in who God says he would be. And here's a second side note for our evangelism too with unbelievers. You cannot expect more than from an unbeliever than just an unbeliever who acts like a sinner and does sinful things in their heart. You cannot expect much from an unbeliever. You can't. It's just it's just not good for you. Number one is a believer in Christ, but also just the reality that we have to ingrain in our minds what do you expect unbelievers to do? Act like Christians? If God has not awakened them to the gospel, you cannot expect them to do the right thing. You just can't. You desire for them to hold them accountable? Yes. Should you hold them to the things of God, calling them out to salvation? Yes. But in reality, you can't save them. But the bigger part is this, is that we cannot expect much from unbelievers except for them to do things that they only know that we did before we knew Christ. And unfortunately, we still do many times that we need to repent from. But what does that do for us? One, it helps bring back to a realization that the world is sinful because of sin. That all of us are in need of Savior. That all of us need to be called to the Father. That all of us need to understand who we once were, but also who we are now in Jesus because of what He's done for us. Here in the, in the text here, Stephen is continually calling the Jewish people and Jewish rulers and the high priests to stop resisting the Holy Spirit. God's presence is not in the temple, and it's not in what you do through the law. It's in who Jesus is and what he's done. We see in verse 40, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who go before us, and for this Moses who led us out, and as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. 
But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as written in the book of the prophets. So, a couple things. One is, we see their idolatry coming out through their unbelief. We see them physically longing for the things of Egypt, and we see them longing for the former things that they used to be a part of, that God had redeemed them from, from the oppression and slavery of. And we see them now turning back to those things, but now offering sacrifices and desiring an image of God. Something they can worship. And Stephen here, he understands that idolatry has been happening in the nation of Israel since the wilderness. It didn't just start around David and Solomon after those kings. It's been there since the wilderness. And he uses Amos 5, 25-27. He quotes this for a reason. Amos 5, 25-27 says, Did you bring, me, bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star for God to read from, that the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So he's saying, before Babylon... You were idolatrous in your heart of hearts because of the rejection, not only of those who God had sent to redeem your fathers, but also because of your rejection, ultimately the Holy Spirit and who God is. So we've seen the rejections here, the Joseph and the patriarchs being rejected, the second thing being Moses and the law, the oracles, living oracles. I mean, it couldn't have gotten any better for Egypt. There were going to God's place, they were under God's rule, they were being provided for, and they were being called to be God's people, and God gave them living oracles. You couldn't get any better than that, but it wasn't enough. I mean, isn't that our own hearts? Nothing's ever enough. You think, just physically material, I'm thinking this off the top of my head, you think if I get this computer, and this phone, and this iPad, and everything will be great, but ultimately in your heart of hearts, it's never going to be enough. You think if you get this promotion and this job and you're saving this amount of money, it's going to be enough. It's never going to be enough. Our hearts are always longing for something more. It's the craving and, and, and restlessness. So how do we get back to where we start resting in Jesus? To where we start taking upon His yoke, which is His kingdom. And we start laying aside our kingdom. And that's what Jesus was talking about. Take my yoke upon you. Though burden is heavy, or for though um, burden is light. What is the name? Yeah. Yoke is heavy, my burden is light. I was thinking of the thing you put on the head. Okay. So you saw the third thing here that the, the, the tabernacle and the temple, there's a big misunderstanding. And that they were temporary. Look at verse 44. It says, Our fathers and the ten of witnesses in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. And our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God had drove out before our fathers. So it wasn't until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And verse 49, he quotes Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? 
Did not my hand make all these things? So why did they misunderstand the temple and the tabernacle and its purpose? Because they thought that that was where the permanent presence of God would exist. But as we see here, even Stephen understood that in Isaiah, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What, what is this place of rest? That heaven is my throne, that earth is my footstool. If you look at Exodus 20 and verse 24, it says here that uh, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. It doesn't have a certain location to find it. But David even understood that I don't want God to be just in this tabernacle. I want to build a house for him because I honor who God is. I honor the name of the Lord and I want to worship him. But God wasn't going to construct for David a physical house. He was going to construct a dynasty. One where the Redeemer would come out of his line. God was going to build him a different type of house. A house where his glory would be seen through his son Jesus Christ. So the holy place uh, is wherever God may be. And there we end our, our, our second part, which is the rejection of God through all of history. So where does Stephen go from there? He says very pointedly this in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now betrayed and murdered, who you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now that's rough. That's really pointed. As Paul used certain words to, in certain situations to convey certain points, it was important that Stephen used this, these words to arrest their attention. You stiff-necked people, you people who won't move from your traditions, uncircumcised in their hearts, that's what Jesus was talking about to the Pharisees, is that your hearts are uncircumcised. You need to be born again. And Stephen's saying the exact same thing, that you always resist the Holy Spirit. You've always resisted God's Spirit, all throughout your history. All those who were sent were rejected by their fathers. All were killed. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one who you now betrayed and murdered. So now he's going to keep the bigger indictment on them, which is you killed Jesus Christ. It wasn't us. It was you. You killed Jesus Christ who was betrayed and murdered. But you received the law as well. It says in verse 53, you received the law delivered by angels and you didn't even keep that. So your temple... It's meant to be fulfilled in Jesus. Your laws and customs, they were changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done. What kind of laws, what kind of traditions, what kind of things have you built up in your own hearts? What kind of legalism do you have going on? Maybe it's through your parenting. Maybe it's how you raise your children in certain ways. Maybe it's through um, your work. Maybe it's through some of your relationships. If they don't do this for me, I'm not going to do that for them. And you lost the sight of grace. We've got to return to that. Or else we're just stiff-necked people who are resisting God's spirit. We've got to resist legalism, tradition, 
Everything's got to be done a certain way, this way, this way, this way, or else God won't love him. And then we're just building our righteousness on top of what we do instead of what God has enforced and taught. What will that lead us to, though, if we continue in radical grace instead of legalism? It'll mean that it will cost us something. It may even cost us our lives. It may cost us promotion. It may cost us something dear to us. But here Stephen is about to lose something that I think a lot of us are afraid to lose, which is ultimately our life for Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 54, Luke writing here, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried up a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried up a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So we see a couple things, three things. One is, this is not a normal stoning here. This is atypical. Typically what they would do in stoning is they would take the individual on top of a series of steps and they push the individual, hoping that they would eventually snap their neck and die from the amount of time they would roll. But if that didn't work, then they would go out and stone them. So it's kind of like a horrible execution. But here, they see a mob enraged. They're tired of hearing Stephen talk. But when Stephen starts talking about his final witness, who is Jesus Christ, because we look in verse 55, we see him looking into heaven and seeing the glory of God. And Jesus stands at the right hand of God. We see his confirming witness right there, who is Jesus Christ, who once declared, whom the law and the temple point to. But all those who took him out, took off their garments as custom, and they laid him out, the man who would ultimately carry the Gentile mission forward, whose name is Saul. You know, it's interesting how Luke uses Stephen right here, this whole account, which I believe this gospel theology, which would segue, which would transition from the Jewish mission to the Gentile mission. Because later in verse 8, as we'll see over the coming weeks, we'll see how Philip is reaching out and proclaiming Christ in Samaria. We'll see how Simon the Magician believes in Samaria. We'll see how Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch have an encounter with the gospel with one another. And how this Ethiopian eunuch comes to the Lord. And ultimately, Cornelius, of the Italian cohort. But I think Luke uses this strategically, this account, in God's perfect plan here for us today because we need to see one other thing is that as Jesus said, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit before he died. He also said, what? He said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But Stephen here, not praying to God the Father, he's praying to Jesus. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and do not hold this sin against them. I think, ultimately, we're seeing Stephen, who was full of the presence of God. And Saul, who experienced God's presence, even through his sin, and approving the execution of Stephen, understanding what was happening, taking place, but not realizing how God was going to use this account for his good name. 
but how the presence of God filled Stephen's life. Remember, back in chapter 6, we saw the first seven chosen. So Stephen was one of them. But just because he was chosen to lead in the serving administration for the early church didn't mean that he quit studying God's Word. We see here 60 verses of how Stephen's speech was full of knowledge, of understanding, and knowing what the Old Testament pointed to. What the Old Testament history really meant for the nation of Israel. And everything pointed to Christ. But God's people, in God's place, under God's good word, and how God's place would be Jesus Christ. God's place would not be the temple. Jesus would fill, fulfill the temple. He would fill, fulfill God's good word, ultimately. He would be the new place. And His blood ultimately would pay for our sins. So let's remember this main thing here. Is that God's presence is not tied or restricted to any one place. We are to be, as Peter talks about, living stones built upon the cornerstone which Jesus Christ arranges. We are to be a household of faith whom God is continually building uh, through the many nations who are coming to know Him as Lord and Savior. And as Stephen declared boldly all of the Old Testament history and recounted all that, we need to recount the Old Testament history. Where we've come from. Because the Bible tells us one thing. It doesn't tell us not only where we're going, it tells us where we came from. And how God continually has been, what Romans talks about engrafting, pulling in Gentiles from every tongue and tribe into his promise. So that one day, Abraham's promise would be completely fulfilled. So in Revelation, as we see them, a witnesses from every tribe and tongue and nation standing before the throne, saying, Worthy is the Lamb. Who was slain. And I think, I believe, I, I will confirm what Christopher Wright talks about in the mission of God. He, he talks about how Abraham one day, metaphorically, might possibly be God's hand with, through Jesus Christ putting around Abraham saying, See how I've confirmed my promise to you through your faith and uh, making a great nation from your children and grandchildren and sons. And I think we speak into that. So let's remember that. Remember where we came from, where we are now, and where we're going. Because ultimately God wants to make a new people to go to His new place and to be His good people under His good word. So let's, let's do that.